You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, thanks for joining Beyond the Ordinary, a podcast where we are learning all about the world of venture and what's coming next in the world. We're so thankful today to have Mark Mullen with us. Mark is with Bonfire VC, recently named by .LA as the top VC in Los Angeles. We are so honored to have him today. He brings a wealth of experience. We're excited to hear his story and also the advice he has for those founders out there. So, Mark, I'd love to start and just you know ask you, what is it you guys do over at Bonfire VC? What are the types of businesses that you're investing in? Yeah, we really are a focused uh, seed fund. We only invest in the seed stage. As an entry point, uh, we do invest in the follow-on rounds in the future, but we really make our first investment, put our first check in at the seed stage. And we only focus on B2B companies, companies that actually sell to other businesses as opposed to selling to consumers. And all of our businesses are software only. Uh, Our focused, we enter at the seed and it's B2B software. And so it's usually going to be a company that already has some traction we unfortunately don't have the ability to invest in you know, an idea or a business plan. We want these companies to have already produced code, that they already have a few customers. This is not unique, but one of our biggest uh, due diligence items is really getting to know the customers. We want to hear what we call customer love from their existing players. And so it's pretty hard to invest in a company that doesn't have any traction yet. Uh, and so we really invest in that seed stage. And then we spend a lot of time with our, our companies, helping them with go-to-market, process, hygiene, board composition, advice, psychiatry, you can you name it, and really helping them through the A stage, if you know the different stages. So that's the next big stage for this company. And we help them get to that point. And we also, we help with the deck. We create a list of investors that we know that we want them to go talk to. We set up those meetings and those introductions, and we really work with them all the way through that A process. So it's a, it's a compact from when we first make the investment almost let's say nine months to 18 months later, we've got them through the A if we've been able to be successful with them. Sounds like there's a lot of coaching that's happening in that process. There's a lot of coaching. I mean, obviously it depends on the the founders and the founding team themselves. You know, we, we do invest, we have had uh, several investments in, in repeat founders that we've invested with in the past. So we're getting to that point where we've been investing for almost 20 years and we have repeat founders and they have, they need less advice, less help, less work. But it just really depends on the founder team and what type of experience they have. Look, I don't know how to code. I don't know how to build a company, but I can advise people. I can work with people. I have seen a lot of things and worked in a lot of different areas and have experience in terms of how these things work. So, Mark, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, let's step back in time a little bit. And looking back in hindsight, a lot of people are able to see kind of this is the moment they had their big idea, their big break. They made this one decision that kind of set off a new trajectory for the rest of their life. Can you point back to anything in your past that was that type of moment? Well, I have a very unique, special, lucky moment where that happened. I grew up in Colorado. I went to college at Michigan. Uh, I was really interested in finance and business in general. Um, My father was uh, was in the ski industry and the restaurant industry. So he was in business, let's call it. And I was wanted to be in, I was good with numbers and I wanted to be in finance. And so I worked for a couple of years after college in banking, and then I went to grad school and focused on international finance. Uh, I went to grad school in at a uh, graduate school internationally. I went to Paris, et cetera, 
and came back so I could speak French and I understood international finance, but I still had very little work experience. You know, I had a couple of years under my belt and I was getting ready to go work uh, in Wall Street and getting ready to move to New York. And I got a chance, this, this woman who my dad knew um, said, hey, have you ever met Bill Daniels? And Bill Daniels was a famous entrepreneur from Colorado. He was a billionaire. And Colorado is pretty small then. And just like if you think about wherever you're from, if there is a famous uh, entrepreneur or business person in that state and someone said, do you want to meet that person? You're like, well, how, yeah, but how does that even happen? It'd be like growing up in Nebraska and somebody saying, do you want to meet Warren Buffett? You're like, well, yeah, of course. But how do you even get to that person? Well, that was the reaction I had. Well, how do you get to Mr. Daniels? And she said, well, I, I know him. I mean, I know somebody that works for him. And they said they're looking for, they want to expand internationally. And so it's just the luck of the draw. And she got me an interview. And I didn't go through a process where I met with 17 people and then got to him. I went straight to him. Wow. That was the kind of guy he had. And you show up in his office and he had an incredible office because he's, he was a naval war hero. He flew 256 missions. He knew every president. He um, was a Golden Gloves boxing champion. We own 10% of Lakers. So you walk in and there's the big, the NBA championship ball in his office. He was a technology television um, pioneer. And so he had 18 TVs on his office wall. It was just a very yeah. amazing experience. And he also wore a cream colored suit and he smoked a long cigarette with a filter. <laughs> and that's when I walk in, I'm 25 years old and I meet this person. For our listeners, uh, you know, those of you that don't know who Bill Daniels is, I mean, think of him really as the father of cable TV. Yeah. That's who Mark's talking about. So when you go in to meet him, what happened? Well, that, that was his nickname. So he's the sweetest man, very straightforward, very uh, rewarding. If you, you know, you work, you're going to have a good time here. You don't work, you're out. It was very clear, uh, but he was very fair. There was never any passive aggressive stuff. It was just... Here's how we work. And he was very uh, philanthropic, um, meaning gave lots of money away, made you give lots of money away, things like that. So when you walk in, it's very, he's not a large man, but he's just very intimidating given his, what I just explained to you, the, the setting. And, you know, I, I can't remember. It's one of those things where you wish somebody was recording the interview. And we spoke for about 45 minutes. And, you know, somehow I got through to him as just somebody who, was willing to go do anything. Like he was asking me questions. Are you afraid to fly? Are you afraid to travel? You know, he, he wanted me on the plane and he wanted me outside of them, you know, outside of his office, trying to spread our expertise. We were an M&A boutique investment bank and we owned a bunch of assets. And I somehow got through to him. And as I was, as I got up to walk out of his office, again, I wish I remember exactly what he said before. He probably said, nice to meet you, you know, get out of here. And as I was walking out of his office, which as I just explained is a large office to one end to the other, he said, Mullen. And I turned around. So that he's already calling me Mullen, uh, which, you know, is my nickname. That's a good sign. It's a good sign. He's already come, but he has a gruff voice and he says, Mullen, I spent my whole life putting my name on the building. Don't you F it up. And that's how he hired me. And what he meant was, you know, we were in a skyscraper in downtown in, in Cherry Creek of Denver. And on the top, it says Daniels. Like, so don't go around the world messing up my name. And that was how I got hired. And so you want to talk about a lucky break. I didn't know what I was going to do, by the way. It wasn't, there was nobody training, but I ended up then joining the company and coming into a really unique atmosphere, a really unique family. As I said, I was about, I was now 26 years old. 
The CEO, Brian Deby, who's still a great friend of mine, investor in all my funds. I mean, he was like 36 years old. He was not that much, you know, 10 years older than me. And everybody in between, we were all the same. He's 26 to 30, 36 years old. And everybody grew up. And I stayed there for 20 years. We all kind of grew up together. I watched everybody have children. I watched everybody get married. I watched everybody have kids. Tragedies happened. I mean, just really all grew up together and were a big family. And Bill was older at the time. And he ended up actually passing away in 2000 at 81 years old. And we end up selling all of his assets, uh, which was in stipulated in his trust anyway. So we had two companies, as you recall, we had the assets and we had the M&A Investment Bank, which had 70 people. And we sold all the assets in 2000, turned out to be about worth, worth about $4 billion wow. in $2,000. We sold our 10% of the Lakers for $100 million. God, we take that back in a second, right? We sold all the assets and then that left the investment bank. The investment bank by now had grown to 70 people by 2006, seven. I had moved to Paris, then I had moved to London, and then I had moved to back to New York, to New York City. And um, we were now had done transactions in over 30 countries. So fast forward wow. 17 years later, I had worked in, in deals in, in 30 different countries and hired other people. And so we really had a quite a run. What type of transactions were you guys doing? So naturally, initially it was cable. Then we got very heavily into the mobile telecommunications business, which was mobile phones, pagers. We sold every paging company and sold them out of business. All the mobile phone businesses, wireless, basically communications. Then we got into ISPs and hosting companies, outdoor advertising, telecom in general, broadband, et cetera. So just expanded. So we're really a telecom and cable and broadband, wireless, boutique investment bank and, and investor. Our transactions were, we got into massive transactions internationally and in the US in terms of selling big cable companies, telecom companies, um, a lot of private equity uh, people were our clients like Carlisle and Blackstone as they were making massive investments in telecom, et cetera, in different countries. Wow. And so that's really where we focus. So we sold the firm in 2007 to RBC Capital Markets, the biggest Canadian bank. Another lucky move was selling it at the beginning of 2007 as opposed to the end of 2007 as the crisis was starting to take place. I stayed for three more years. The writing was on the wall. The era was over for all of us. And I'll tell you what, I probably have, I had probably nine partners at the time. I can tell you eight of them are investors with me hmm. now. You know, we all know each other. We, we know where our kids are, went to college. It's, it's continued on. So it's been a very, very lucky, a unique experience. So Mark, after the, you know, after that transaction, you stuck around for three years. After that, you actually headed over as the chief operating officer of Los Angeles's economic office. Yeah. We'd love to hear about that. Well, there's a, there's a gentleman by the name of Austin Butner, uh, who was a investment banker as well in New York. Then he worked in the Clinton administration. And then he started was the co-founder of Evercore, which is a pretty large investment bank. They also had a big private equity firm. And, and he and I met in the late 90s on a transaction in Belgium, of all places, on a big cable deal. And we became friendly. He moved to L.A. in 2001. I moved to L.A. in 2005, where my wife is from. And we ended up uh, reconnecting and his youngest and my oldest were in preschool together. This is how, you know, preschool always leads to, leads to relationships, right? Absolutely. He had by then had become a very successful uh, wealthy businessman, but had been very uh, involved in a lot of philanthropic areas, starting a couple of charities himself, but was at the time in 2009 being recruited to perhaps go to work uh, for the Fed 
and was talking to me because we had been friends now and he knew that we had sold the business and I was on the beach, as they say. He says, you know, it'd be really interesting. You should give back and do something, you know, on a public basis. And I'm looking at perhaps going to work with the Fed at the Geithner at the time, if that'd be something you'd be interested in. And, you know, it was very interesting and to think about it. I wasn't really interested in moving to Washington, D.C., but at the time when the crisis was happening, it sounded like a great challenge, frankly. But as it turns out, he was subsequently enticed to become the first deputy mayor of Los Angeles. And what the city was trying to do is emulate what they had done in New York City, which was when Bloomberg was elected in New York, which is 2001, he appointed Dan Doktoroff, who's now currently a pretty famous, well-known guy in New York as an investor. Dan Doktoroff was at Bloomberg. He appointed him and several other people he brought in from the private sector and try to basically mix it up and have some private sector, public sector partnerships and try to instill some sort of culture in the public sector with some private sector um, expertise. And so that's what they wanted to do in L.A. And so when Mayor Vigoroso was elected in 2009, the powers that be in L.A. convinced Austin to become the first deputy mayor. And I was Austin's number two. And so we kind of made up the title. I was essentially deputy mayor, but I didn't want to be deputy mayor because you have to then get paid. And we didn't want to get paid because then people were like, what do you guys, why do you guys need to? So you can imagine we didn't want to do all that. So we made up the title and essentially I was chief operating officer of the city of LA and the senior advisor to the mayor. And it was just a very strange way to start, but it was a very unique opportunity. And we, we had a lot of pushback interestingly, from the city council, um, because they thought we were the city council and the mayor were kind of at odds with each other. They thought the mayor really hired us. We understood that the city hired us. We were there for the whole city and not just some of the mayor's particular uh, personal passions, you know. And so Austin and I were just very focused on whatever we could do in many different areas for the city. And so that led me to, uh, as I mentioned, I moved to, moved to L.A. prior. I didn't know L.A. very well. And the quickest way to learn a city is to actually be in the government. And so what I learned or observed is that um, there's an incredible economy here. You all know that. There's 10 million people here and there was very little VC. Yeah. There's tons of money here, but organized VC was light. What year was this? This is now 2000, beginning of 2010. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is absolutely before LA kind of explodes on the VC scene. Yes. And so as, uh, you know, my prior life at Daniels, we invested a lot of things personally. So I was already investing in other funds and companies directly. So I had that, that capability. And then as I was looking around LA, I was like, there's very little VC here. I actually am an investor in 18 funds now, but many VC funds here in LA, I'm an investor in. And I was an investor in a couple of the early ones, like Upfront, as you know, and Crosscut and some others. And um, I just realized that there was, there was an opportunity to start my own VC firm that focused on technology, B2B investing, and was trying to take advantage of what was going to be the cloud and mobile. And so really lucked out on that timing basis and started my first fund in 2012. And now we're five funds in and we're about to raise the sixth. That's awesome. And so then, uh, you know, when you got into the VC space, one of the things that our listeners are constantly asking is, hey, for those founder teams out there, 
give them just a sense of why VC can be such a nice oxygen boost for their business. I think a lot of the founder teams know maybe they need VC and they should be thinking about it, but don't really know yet why. So what's that actual value add that the right VC brings to that founder team? Yeah, great question. Uh, In today's world, in today's environment, particularly in the US, there's never been more capital available. There's never been a more accepting environment for starting a company. You know, whether you're 18 years old or coming out of college or coming off your first job or in your mid 40s, the opportunity or the acceptance for a person to want to start a company has never been higher. And it's almost a job title, you know, like I can go start this company. Now, having said that, 95% or more of companies shouldn't be taking any VC capital. By the way, every business is a startup, whether it's a restaurant, a software company, a nail salon, it's all a startup. But really on a VC angle, what we invest in is software. And software is essentially people. There's no manufacturing. So software is people. And so capital that we provide really provides um, the money to hire the people, hire the right uh, talent, and customer acquisition, going out and spending money to acquire customers and then servicing those customers, making them happy. And so we spent a lot of time with our companies um, that have that vision that what they're building is code-based, that it's a technology solution, that it's going to help someone's business perform better or make more revenue themselves. And I think that that's the kind of businesses that we focus on and can be very helpful on. What are the hallmarks of a good founder or founder team that you're looking for when you're making investments? Yeah. So having said what I was saying earlier about the environment being more accepting for founders, that's great. Uh, That doesn't mean you just can start a company and say, yeah, you know, we we really want to find out. I had this exact same conversation yesterday with a founding team. We were meeting for the first time over Zoom. And they have some good traction and they have some good customers, at least on the deck and discussion. I said, who are you guys? Like why? One of them was in Pittsburgh and the other was in Florida. I'm like, how did you guys meet? And why do you think your own individual passions have come together and are going to work together? So we start to dig into that a little bit. And you, you find out that the, the, the main, the core founder had been working for eight years at a company. He ran customer service at this company. And this was a real core problem that he saw that he thinks he can fix. So we look for that ability, that passion to solve a problem and that you have expertise and experience on that problem and that you want to fix that problem. There's other people who are like, hey, I think that that looks like an arbitrage opportunity. That looks like a good opportunity. Let's go try to start a company to do that. We stay away from that. That's not a passion. That's not somebody trying to fix something. That's somebody trying to take advantage of a situation. Those companies still will perhaps work depending on how good that founder is. But we want to find these people that it's like, this problem is driving me crazy. I want to fix it. I love that. Over your time, you've seen some companies that don't make it. What is it that you attribute, you know, that lack of uh, getting to the next stage or meeting those milestones? What are the common causes that you see that cause those companies to not meet their next milestones? Well, there's uh, founder created, non-founder created. I mean, any type of market, you know, on the non-founder issue, it could be any situation that could happen in the market. For example, the first three months of COVID definitely hurt quite a few companies. Uh, You can't actually plan for that. The other thing is that um, competition, you know, while you may today, if a company comes to me and it's called 
tommymartin.com and I Google tommymartin.com and it says you, you know, you fix cars with the internet. I could probably Google that and find nine other companies that do that. Now I have to figure out why there's differentiation. But at the end of the day, you, I'm not going to meet those eight other founders of those nine companies. So I can't make that judgment call if my founder is going to be the best founder. We don't know yet. And so there's going to be any number of causes where that's market market issues um, that it would affect the company. The second piece is that most companies fail when they run out of money. So you have to have money and you have to raise money from VCs if that's the case that you're going down that path. And if you're raising money from VCs, you've got to be able to, to have traction and tell the story. And in order to have traction and tell the story, you've got to be able to hire and have a vision. And so hiring is the hardest part right now. Every company is trying to hire a front-end developer, a head of sales, a chief product officer, a VP engineer right now. Yeah, a lot of competition. A lot of competition to hire. And if you're going out to somebody that's kind of a superstar, you say, hey, look, we've got a million dollars in run rate revenue. We have nine employees. Come work for me. That's going to be a hard sell. But if that founder is able to go out and articulate a vision and a story and entice and excite that person and really be painting the picture of what that firm was trying to build. You know, if she can do that, she will be able to hire incredible people and grow. And so if you can't do that, you're going to fail. That's great insight. Mark, one of the things I was curious about is uh, what was it that was part of you making what has become your favorite investment to date? Well, there's two types of favorite investments. There's ones that make a ton of money. Right. And there's ones that don't make money, but you have a ton, a ton of um, gratification with the relationship, probably more likely with the founders or they do something that's uh, they overcome some sort of difficulty that is very rewarding. Rather than talk about the ones that have made money, um, I think I talk about one we invested It's only uh, about three and a half years ago. I invested in the founding team, a man and a woman from India, their story, how they got to my office, which is not, not directly to my office, but sitting in my office three and a half years ago, telling me what they wanted to try and build, but me asking them questions about how did you get here? Who are you? What, what were your parents like? Where'd you grow up? What was it like growing up in New Delhi? Those types of questions. It became clear that they, the fact that they were even in LA and even in my office was a miracle. One of the founders grew up very, very poor and had to sell pencils on a corner. Wow. Right? As a 12-year-old. And as I'm looking at that person saying, the fact that you're here just proves to me that you won't give up on anything Mm -hmm. and that you deserve a chance. And so we didn't know what we were investing in. We did. They had some traction. They were creating something. And we often will sometimes say, look, these founders are so unique that we just got to ride them. We just got to jump on what they're doing and, and hope that hope for the best. And so um, that company has pivoted twice and they've now on their third, their third company and the third company is really doing well and they've raised a ton of money and we just have such a unique loving relationship that it's just been very rewarding for all of us. And we want nothing more than all of our founders to win, of course, but this is just one ex- exceptional story that we're really hopeful for. That's great to hear. Have you had an opportunity to actually go visit New Delhi with them? No, um, because really the last two years, we've all been sucked up into COVID. So COVID, 
Yeah. They have met my parents. They know my kids. They know, you know, we all know each other. We all know our dogs. It's, uh, you know, we we only do, Bonfire only does about eight deals a year. We lead most of those deals. We we get involved with our companies. We don't force any relationship, but we end up getting to know people pretty well. And you, over time, you're going to know these people for four, seven, 10, 15 years. We have three investments, like I said earlier, in Bonfire Fund 1, where I've now known the founders for 20 plus years and Bonfire is only, you know, five years old. So we all develop in hope that we can have long-term relationships that continue to, to be fruitful for both sides. I love it. Mark, I'm going to jump into my favorite segment where I get to ask you the question that everybody is wondering. And that question today is, before Austin brought you in as the chief operating officer for Los Angeles, uh, you guys met in Belgium. What was it in Belgium where you guys hit it off? How did that happen? I was a banker and he was the investor. We were selling a deal that they invested in. And in that context, you end up um, you know, in numerous email conversations, numerous phone calls, numerous relationships. You just end up starting to develop a relationship. Austin's a very straightforward very smart person, uh, had a lot to learn from him and I could see that. Um, and so, and he welcomed, you know, questions and, and was, was open with his time. And so that's how we met was more like, a, I, I was working for almost working for him, but, um, working for the company that they were investing in. And so we just ended up developing that relationship. And then we both were in New York and then we both ended up in LA. So it was easy to, to connect. I had broken my neck in 19, in the mid nineties and he had broken his neck in 2007 and we ended up having the same surgery. So it was just a, just a coincidental uh, issue where you know, we talked about how that surgery went, stuff like that. So that's how we became friends. And we have a lot of medical listeners, Mark. Uh, what type of surgery was it? Uh, it's just fusion of the, you know, some of the vertebrae. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, here's the real question that everybody's asking, Mark. <laughs> so those out there listening, uh, some of them are founders. Some of them have great founder teams. I'd love if you take a moment, just let them know what are the right types of businesses for Bonfire? Well, a lot of businesses, again, so we're, we're software-based, code-based, B2B businesses. So what's we're seeing more and more is, for example, we have a company called, well, we have a company called Figment, uh, which was just in the news yesterday, raising, raising a large round. That's in the blockchain space. And we're not trading crypto. We're not trading uh, coins and tokens. We are basically the picks and shovels behind. So we're, we're essentially the AWS for cryptos. We manage all the platforms, the regulatory and the technology for other companies. That's the type of business we love, which is behind the scenes, picks and shovels, building the applications and the software behind maybe perhaps the front facing uh, business. Another company, for example, is, um, is Boulevard. Boulevard is building the software for uh, appointment-based businesses, salons, spas, et cetera. Not one-off barbers, but really whole, holistic salon franchises, et cetera, where the entire thing, the ordering, the um, scheduling, buying uh, shampoo, et cetera, whatever, is all on the software platform so they can handle inventory. It's just one platform. It's very similar to MindBody was for, for gyms. And so that's, again, really the infrastructure, the resource for a company to operate on top of that, what's behind the scenes. Those are really the businesses we like to invest in, you know, helping another business make their business more efficient or generate more revenue. I love it. 
Well, Mark, thanks so much for spending this time with us. If you are a founder team out there that fits this profile, uh, and please, only if you fit that profile, feel free to go over to bonfirevc.com. You can find the link to submit an investment opportunity. Uh, Let's not flood Mark's inbox with uh, companies that aren't a good match. But if you do have a team that's a good match like that, Mark would love to hear from you. And certainly then, uh, as some of those fintech or health tech opportunities continue to grow, we hope we'll be uh, back in the mix over here at Mammoth. Thanks so much for joining us for Beyond the Ordinary. We look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.